anything in the world. Now, it might surprise you to hear me say this, but that sounds like an utterly miserable statement, doesn't it? Do not love the world or anything in the world. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'll be honest, I love lots of things in the world. Uh, I love my family. I love friends. I love good food. Uh, I love uh, music. Um, I love novels. I love going to the cinema. I love uh, hiking in the mountains uh, on a clear day. Uh, I love holidays in the sun. I love both the smell and the taste of good coffee. I love lots and lots of things in this world. And am I, John, am I, am I wrong? Am I wrong to love lots of things in the world? Maybe the Amish have got it right. Uh, I was reading just last week uh, an article in the online BBC magazine about the Amish, one community of Amish people, Amish people, I don't know how you pronounce that, You'll, maybe you correct me after, Amish, Amish, I'm not sure, um, up in um, upstate New York near a town called Canton. They have, they're quite a conservative sect uh, and they have deliberately cut themselves off from as much of the 21st century world as is possible uh, to avoid being corrupted by the world. Um, And so the elders of that little community have forbidden anyone under 18 to go into the local town. Uh, Most of the economy for that little community is based around dairy farming. Uh, And what the elders have decided is that um, the farmers are to milk their cows by hand and then transport the churns of milk to a central collection point so that their families have no contact with the lorry drivers from the creamery because they want to not love the world or anything in the world. Uh, one story about this community, they got into trouble, uh, it's why they hit the news in, a few years ago, back in 2015, was when they were building houses without putting smoke alarms in them. Uh, and that is illegal in the state of New York. And so a bunch of these Amish builders uh, were dragged into court uh, and charged with breaking the law. Uh, one of the, the defendants, a guy called Mose Miller, uh, was asked as part of the court case, what if there's a fire in the middle of the night? Uh, and Mose simply said, I will trust this. And he pointed to his nose. Uh, and I will trust him. And he pointed to God. And he said, I do not need a devil on the wall telling me my house is burning. Okay? Why? Because they take seriously. Do not love the world or anything in the world. How are we meant to understand this phrase? Um, Have the Amish got it right? Are we horribly compromised? Well, just glance over to chapter 3, verse 11. Just glance over to chapter 3, verse 11. John writes this, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Okay, so when John says, do not love the world or anything in the world, clearly if he's not been completely inconsistent, 
uh, and I don't believe he is. He's a very consistent, clever writer and inspired by the Holy Spirit. He is saying when he says, do not love the world, he's clearly not saying that you're not to love people in the world. And that just raises the possibility for us that actually maybe we need to do some careful thinking about what he's talking about when he says not to love the world. Uh, For those of you who haven't been with us, what we've been doing is been working slowly through uh, this letter of 1 John. And we've learned, uh, looking between the lines, reading between the lines, at some of the clues in the letter itself, that clearly there's been a bit of a church split There's been a group in the church who have left. And they have left and they have said, look, uh, you you have quite a simple basic faith. And that's fine, I suppose. But we've now grown up. We now have a more sophisticated faith. We now have a broader perspective. We now uh, see things more clearly. We we have a deeper insight. uh, And we have greater spiritual experiences. And if some of your friends were saying those things to you and had left and started some new group, I think if you're anything like me, you'd be thinking, well, hold on a minute, maybe I, maybe I am missing out on something. Maybe I should move on too. John then is writing to the group that are left behind, not to be political, but he's, he's talking to the, the remainers, okay? He's talking to the remainers, not the, not the leavers, the remainers. Uh, and he is writing to encourage them, to reassure them. Look, what you have believed from the very beginning about Jesus, that is true. That is true. The way you've been instructed to behave, that is right. That is right. Stick with what you've got. You've got everything you need. You belong to God. You are fully forgiven. You are loved by him. Keep going. Stick with what you've got. You've got everything you need. But crucially for these verses this morning, I just want you to to follow along with chapter 4, verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. This is how John describes the leavers, those folks who have left the church. Chapter 4, verse 5, he says, They are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. Uh, As John describes them, he's really saying, he unmasks the motivation really behind those who have left. And the motivation behind those who have left is that they want to fit in better with the world and the society around them. And that has led them to edit some of the beliefs that they once held and open up and be more permissive in the behavior and lifestyle that is uh, permitted for them. You see, it's always true, it's always true that Christianity at some point clashes with the culture that's around it. At some point, the exclusive claims that Christianity makes, at some point, the ethics that, Chris, that Christianity and the apostles taught clash awkwardly, embarrassingly with the culture around. And there's a tension. And this group has tried to sort out and solve the tension by leaving, by editing, by becoming more uh, permissive. 
to fit in with the world around. And John now writes to these group of remainers and he says, do not love the world in the way they do. Don't love the world in the way they do. And so I want to look at these few verses, only uh, a few verses, only three verses. But nevertheless, they're, they're cram full of stuff for us to think about and problems for us to solve. And what I want to do is I just simply want to ask and attempt to answer three questions. What is the world? What is the world? What does it mean to love the world and why we shouldn't? Okay, what is the world? What does it mean to love the world and why we shouldn't. Okay, first then, what is the world? What is the world? Well, John uses this word, this concept of the world, actually in at least two very different ways. And if you're to understand what he's saying, you need to appreciate that. So if I was to say to you, for example, Hitler was wicked, and I am a wicked dancer, Okay, clearly same word, wicked, two radically different ways to use it. Okay, same sort of thing is true here with this word, the world. The first way that John uses it is in a geographical sense. He uses it to describe the planet, planet Earth, uh, the, the place, the where we live. And so in John 4 verse 9, he says this, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. And what he means by that is into this place here, third rock from the sun, this one. He uses it a a similar way in in John chapter 4, verse 17. I've quoted it in the ESV. I think it's slightly clearer. Uh, By this, his love is perfected with us so that we might have confidence for the day of judgment because as he uh, is, so also are we in this world. We live here in this place as Jesus did physically. Okay, you get the idea? So the first way John uses the world is simply describe this place, planet Earth. But then clearly John uses it in a, in a different way. So just glance over to chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Now clearly planet Earth cannot hate you. It has no feelings. It's not a person. It has no feelings or intentions towards you at all. Clearly, John is is just using this word, the world, not just in a geographical sense. He also uses it in a moral sense. This term, the world, for John is also shorthand for all of humanity in rejection and opposition uh, to God. And, it has, and it's the, this negative sense, this moral sense that he's using in our verses this morning in verses 15 to 17 uh, of chapter 2. And so it's, look, why am I spending some time on this? Look, it's really important that you appreciate that John uses the word in two radically different ways. Um, For example, we'll come back to this at communion time. uh, When we're told that God so loved the world um, that he gave his one and only son, John is saying God's love is impressive, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. He loved people who were hostile against him and sent his son for them. 
Why is it important we understand that uh, John uses the, the word world in two different ways? Well, it's important because when you realize that so, when he uses the word world to describe planet Earth, he means it in an entirely neutral way. John is not, not telling you to despise creation to run from the pleasures uh, and enjoyments of this beautiful, enjoyable world. John is not saying that we should despise creation. In fact, if you read the Bible very, from the very beginning, we read that God made this world. He made it to be something beautiful and something to be enjoyed. And when you read Genesis 1, you read very quickly that God pronounces that it's good. And then when he makes human beings, our first parents, to care for this world, to enjoy this world, to develop the potential, the untapped potential of this world, we're told that this world is very good. God loves this world and he has made it for us to enjoy. And so um, we read, for example, um, Paul in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if, if, if it is received with thanksgiving. So there's so many good pleasures in this world that are given for us to be enjoyed. God has gifted, he's gifted composers and novelists and filmmakers and artists and chefs and inventors. And we are to enjoy their, the fruits of their creations. We are to enjoy, there's uh, fun activities for us to enjoy, beautiful places for us to see, amazing food for us to eat. There's so many delights in this world that we are to enjoy with moderation and quickly give our thanks to God for the gifts that he has given. But, but, John also says, do not love the world. And by this we should understand uh, in John's gospel that he means that we are not to live with the same self-centered attitude, same ambitions and obsessions as the people around us who are hostile to God. We are not to be the same as those around us. We are not to have the same agenda, the same obsessions and addictions as those around us who are loving the world. Well, that invites the next question then. What does it mean to love the world? If that is what the world is, it is humanity here, what it means here is humanity and rejection of God, then what does it mean? What does it look like to love the world? Well, John gives three examples, three examples. Um, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for everything uh, in the world. And then he gives three examples of loving the world, the cravings of sinful man, or maybe more literally, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the three descriptions of what it looks like to love the world. The first one is the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. Now, desire in itself is not wrong. Desire is just part of being human. We have physical bodies that send signals to our brain that give us urges. We have the urge for food. 
We have the urge for warmth. We have the urge for comfort. We have the urge for sex. None of those things in and of themselves are bad or bad at all. They're just natural, normal urges of a, a human body. The word, however, the Greek word that, that Paul uses here, I don't normally do this, but oh, we didn't get the font right. Forget about the, the, the font in the middle. The Greek word that he uses to translate lust, the Greek word that he uses to translate lust, epithumia, therefore all the Greek scholars out there, it can really be translated over-desire. I think that's a brilliantly helpful idea. It's not that the desire is wrong, but the over-desire is wrong. It's to desire something so much that actually it, it outweighs, it overtakes any thought of being obedient to God. Uh, so the lust or the desire for a, is it this desire for a good thing that becomes more important uh, than pleasing God. So the lust of the flesh here could be defined as the disorder or inflamed desire for pleasure without regard for the Creator's instructions. What does that look like? Well, that's when uh, a man says, actually, this job is not really ethical. As a Christian, I probably shouldn't be doing it. But the money is so good that I can't say no. It's the woman who says, I know God has said that sex is a, a, wonderfully, a wonderfully good gift, but it's for inside marriage. But I really fancy this guy, and I really want to be with him. And so I'm going to do it. That, both of those are lust of the eyes, it's, or lust of the flesh. Uh, it's the, I, I know God has told me uh, that actually turning the other cheek and forgiving someone is the right thing to do, but they are just so winding me up at the moment that I'm just going to give them both barrels. Okay? That is lust of the flesh. It's, I've had an incredibly stressful week. It's been really tough. I'm stressed out. This, this weekend, I'm just going to take a few drinks uh, and get and just forget my troubles. That is lust of the flesh. Those urges overtake what you know God has commanded you to do. The lust of the flesh is the disorder or inflamed desire for pleasure, satisfaction, without regard for the Creator's instructions. And is that not exactly what the world preaches to us? If it feels good, do it. As long as you're not hurting anyone, if it feels good, do it. In fact, we're increasingly been told that actually to repress any urge or desire is, is dangerous. You shouldn't do that. If you feel it, that means you ought to do it. As long as you're not hurting anybody. John would say, those, those messages, those urges, that is the lust of the flesh. That is the lust of the flesh. That is one way in which you are loving the world. Loving the world. Second, lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. There's one um, type of gift that has gone down exceptionally well in the Campbell household. And that is Star Wars Lego. Star Wars Lego. And what's not to like, everyone? Star Wars, great. Lego, 
great. Together, awesome. Okay? And so, and it's, done no, it's been no harm that actually I get to build Lego again. So that's been brilliant. But one gift, we went big last, last Christmas. Uh, we went big last Christmas. And Samuel got the Star Wars Millennium Falcon. Um, this, is, this is the instruction manual, okay? <laughs> right? It's the instruction manual that I stole from his bedroom this morning. Um, it took days to build it. <laughs> it took days to build it. Step by step, piece by piece, hour by hour, day by day. Uh, it's gone down a tree in our house. Samuel slept with it beside his bed for ages, still plays with it regularly. Um, it's been brilliant. Uh, and when you get to the end of the... When you get to the end, you get this wonderful picture of the completed set, right? This is the completed set. And that used to be, when I was a kid, that used to be the final page, but it's not the final page anymore. Instead, this is the final page. Here are all the other things that you could also have, right? Uh, It's what economists call the nudge, right? The nudge. And look down, and there's, uh, yes, www.lego.com. Hint, 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 okay? Uh, The nudge. Uh, and it works a treat. It works a treat. We spent days building this big Millennium Falcon, piece by piece, piece by piece, till we finally got there, got to the final page, and within about 30 seconds, within about 30 seconds, uh, Dad, for my birthday, could I have the Han Solo speeder as well? That is Lego's attempt to monetize the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. We all know, you see, it's a really short journey. It's a really short journey from your eyes to your heart. I see it. Oh, yeah, I really want that. I really need it. I really need it. I can't imagine now life without that thing. That is what John would call the lust uh, of the eyes. And it's the cry of a seven-year-old But it's also the cry of a 27-year-old. It's also the cry of a 37-year-old. It's also the cry of a 57-year-old. We never really get past that. I see it. I want it. I need it. I need it. That's the thing that will satisfy me. And so according to John, then, the lust of the eyes is the disordered or inflamed desire for possessions without thanks for the Creator's gifts. That's what he means here. The lust uh, of the eyes. And we see a brilliant example of that in the famous story in the book of Joshua, the story of Achan. Some of you will know that story. God has guided his people through the desert. He's bringing them into the promised land. There's this first massive obstacle, uh, the the walled city of Jericho. God supernaturally uh, enables them to conquer that city. But he gives them one clear command after he does that, after he provides that supernatural help. Do not take any of the treasures of that city for yourself. And then we read about one guy, Achan, who goes wandering around the city and finds this beautiful, um, this beautiful cloak from Babylon. Uh, he finds articles or items that are of silver and gold. And at that moment, his desire, his over-desire, 
His desire for wealth and comfort is more important to him than his desire to be obedient to God. And so he takes them and disaster follows. That is the lust of the eyes. I see it. I want it. I need it. I need it. And we're all guilty of that, aren't we? We're all guilty of watching the TV shows, you know, Old House, New Home, uh, Grand Designs. What a, wow, what an amazing house. Wow, look at, the, look at the job they've done. And then you look around your own house and think, what am I stuck in this miserable little house for? I need an extension. I need an extension. New kitchen. That's, that's, or we stroll through Instagram. Uh, we stroll through Instagram and we say, oh my goodness, look at, all, look at the way they're dressed. Uh, look at the lifestyle that they're enjoying. If I only had that, then I would be happy. Then I would be happy. That is loving the world. That is the lust of the eyes. And we are all guilty of it, aren't we? We're all guilty. The lust of the flesh, the desire for pleasure that's inflamed and out of control, the desire for stuff that's inflamed and out of control. And the last one is the pride of life. The pride of life. Um, I think the NIV does a good job in explaining that. It is boasting, the pride in who we are and what we've achieved. Pride in us and what we've achieved. I've used this, uh, these two illustrations before, but I can't think of anything better, so I'm going to give them again. You might be here this morning and you think, I'm actually not, not a very proud person. I'm very realistic of my own limitations. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be boasting to other people about who I am and what I've done. Yet, try these two tests on for size. Imagine there is a group photograph that you are in. And someone says, oh, did you see the group photograph? Who do you look for first? <laughs> we, all, we all look for this. For me? How am I looking? How's my hair? Was, oh, was the dress though the right way? Whatever. We're all the same. Here's a second example. Second example is, I've had lots of arguments that I have lost, especially in my own home, but I've had lots of arguments that I've lost, okay? And when you lose an argument, what do you do? You rerun it in your head, don't you? You rerun it. Oh, I should have said that. should have said that. I would have showed them, actually, if I'd have said that. I've lost lots of arguments, but I've never lost a rerun. Never. never. I always come out the winner. And we're all the same. I don't think I'm alone in that, am I? We're all the same. We are naturally proud people. We're naturally proud people. We have an inflated sense of the importance of self. We're naturally self-reliant. We're naturally self-promoting. We are naturally self-centered. And... Pride is a bit like bad breath, actually. It's a bit like bad breath. You don't notice it so much in yourself, but when someone else has it, oh, it's disgusting. It's repulsive, isn't it? Uh, We're really good at seeing it in other people, yet we're blind to it ourselves, aren't we? We're blind to it ourselves. How many of our conversations, conversations, are actually just interrupted monologues where we're talking about ourselves and then someone else says something why we have to stop and then we can talk about ourselves again. Uh, How much of our social media output uh, or the posts that we make on Facebook and Instagram or Twitter are actually just self-promotion, just self-promotion. Look at me, look at me, look at me. Aren't I doing well? 
pride of life. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. That is dangerous. Don't love the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The pride of life. Why shouldn't we love the world? Why shouldn't we love the world? John is a wise pastor. He doesn't just give you commands, naked commands, telling wag his finger and say, what you should do. He gives two brilliant reasons why you shouldn't love the world. Here's the first one. The love for the world and love for the Father are mutually exclusive. You cannot do both. You can't do both. You've got to choose. Verse 16. For everything in the world uh, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Or verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. And, And John at this point is just echoing the teaching of Jesus, isn't he? Jesus, in in the famous Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, he said, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. But I think perhaps the apostle that captures the problem and expresses the alternatives most clearly, most pointedly, is uh, James in his book, where he says exactly the same thing, but he says it like this. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Let's express it in local terms. Imagine in the 70s. um, I hope this would never be true of anyone here, but imagine in the 70s you decided that you were going to become a member of the UVF. That they were going to be your gang you're going to align yourselves with them. Well, by definition then, you cannot be friends with those in the IRA. They are enemies. Have very different visions for the world. Have completely opposing ways to get there. You see the idea? God hates pride and selfishness and the damage that it causes. God hates those things. And so if you're going to adopt the attitude of the world and you're going to live for this world, look for your pleasure and satisfaction here, look to stuff for your security and satisfaction and be proud of who you are and what you've done, you will be walking away from God. That's what it looks like to walk away from God. So perhaps you're here this morning and you would say, well, actually... To be honest, that that does describe me. I am looking to this world for my pleasure. I am looking to this world for my status and security. And I have done a fair bit. And I am quite proud of what I've achieved. John wants you to hear this warning. Hear this warning. If that is you, then John would say, you do not yet know God. You do not yet, you have not yet experienced his saving love. Come to him. And in fact, in him, and here's the complete irony of the Bible, come to him and abandon the world and looking to the world, you will ironically find pleasure. You'll ironically find status and security, both now and forevermore. Come to him.
If you haven't done that already, do it today. Come to him. Or if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian perhaps for many years, but you'll be honest and say, do you know what? It's grown a bit stale. It's grown a bit boring. It's grown a bit mundane. John would say, well, maybe part of the problem is that you have loved the world. Because there's a seesaw effect. If you start to look to the world for your pleasure and status and security, then actually your affection for the world will grow and your affection for God will diminish. That is the way it works. Come back to him. Come back to him. And you will find that the seesaw begins to tilt the other way. Your affection for him will grow. Your desire to please him will grow. Your passion to serve him will grow. And as a result, your passion for the world will fade. Never completely, but it will fade. Do not love the world, because love for the world and love for the Father are mutually exclusive. They're mutually exclusive. And then lastly, do not love the world. We shouldn't love the world, because the love of the world doesn't last. It doesn't last. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. I think many of us who are Christians in this room will will know that the world is going to pass away. It's not going to go on forever. Uh, The Bible is really clear. Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he will rule. His rule now is invisible and contested. But when he comes back again, his rule will be visible and uncontested. And everyone will bow before him. I think we're familiar with the fact that this world, this current age, will come to an end. But what really struck me as I read that verse, it's the desires themselves will pass away. What does John mean by that? Well, imagine you were five or six, and all you wanted... So I'm I'm speaking as a boy, so and I have boys, so I'm sorry, this illustration is boy-heavy, okay? But imagine you're five or six, and all you wanted in the world was the Fisher Price garage. That's what you wanted. That's all you wanted. Maybe it's the the Barbie playhouse for you. Uh, But that's all you want. And you, at five, would be willing to sacrifice anything to get it. But now you're whatever age you are. And you look back and you think, oh, well, that's a little bit embarrassing. That I really, really wanted that. Because you've grown up. And those desires have passed away. But imagine you had sacrificed something truly, truly valuable in order to get that trinket back then. Well, wouldn't that be a tragedy now? Wouldn't it? Imagine you'd given away something truly valuable in order to get that toy. John is saying, don't make the same mistake. Don't give away something truly valuable. Your relationship with God for a trinket that will just pass away and something that will absolutely not matter in a hundred years from now. No, how does he finish? But the man or the person who does the will of God lives forever. Investing in your relationship with God, making whatever sacrifices now are necessary, you will never you will never regret it in the long run. Never. 
and they will bring you the satisfaction actually that you always long for. And so it is worth it to trust God, to be faithful to him and live to please him, even if that involves some minor sacrifices now to do that. Do not love the world or anything in the world, but the man who does the will of God, the person who does the will of God, will live forever. Let me pray.